Welcome to part two of the ATS section on medical education podcast for December 2017. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Deepak Pradhan, and I'll be your podcaster. I'm one of the pulmonary critical care faculty at New York University, and I'm again joined by Adina Kallet, full professor in the Departments of Medicine and Surgery at NYU and renowned medical education expert. In part one, we discussed the myths and realities of adult learning theories, and now in part two, we'll delve into some of the modalities of active learning for adult learners and have Adina share her insights and allow us to leverage our understanding to be better medical educators. Adina, in the last part, we talked about adult learning theories, but now I wanted to shift focus to modalities that are available and work for this learner group. Compared to passive learning, the term active learning sounds great, but what are we really talking about conceptually with active learning? There are many, many, many ways um, now, particularly with, with all the technology-enhanced sort of strategies and the ability to do things uh, on a very large scale that are very exciting, um, but fundamentally um, uh, what we need to think about is how to motivate people to identify their own learning needs and then go at it um, with gusto. Um, and so active learning, which is also kind of a, a very big bucket, it's a big framework for a lot of specifics. Um, to be active means the learner is identifying and identifying learning needs generally, um, or identifying them from a list given to them by people who know better. So we do know that people don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there is a role for teachers to define a domain and put those definitions, and by that I mean through instructional objectives or learning goals or whatever you want to call them, to define a field um, and communicate those specifics to learners so that the learners can identify whether they already know something or whether they need to know it. Um, so there's there's a, most active learning strategies or teaching strategies require a teacher to, to frame it, an expert, somebody to say, here's specifically what we want you to have learned by the time you're done, and then to define a, a some kind of activity through which most people could learn the, learn what is needed to learn, and really well de- def- really well um, uh, designed instruction is actually very creative and tough to do well because generally we try to do it in big on a large scale for many people at the same time, and every individual comes to it with different sets of background experiences and what they already know and uh, what they're building on. And we know that people have to build, like I was saying earlier with Jeff Norman's content matters, knowledge matters, there are always kind of prerequisite knowledge uh, and, and life experience that helps people kind of take full advantage of active learning strategies. So the really common ones, very simple ones, are not being the sage on the stage not assuming lecture is the best way to deliver anything but a very interesting story, which is the best lectures are usually people who are telling um, the story of a discovery, right? The scientists who can sort of take you through their process or somebody who really kind of d- 
delivers a, a very important framing message that allows people to go on and then learn what they need to learn. So lectures have limited, import, they are important, but limited. Anything after that is some way to interact so that the learners are not sitting there passively because attention spans are limited and all those things we know about the brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's rare for somebody to be able to pay attention and really absorb beyond a certain amount of time, a certain amount of information, and lecturers generally uh, exceed those limits. It's very hard to do a good lecture that doesn't exceed those limits. So providing tools like um, like the information, what, one of the most important uh, active learning strategies is something called prever previewing. So if you have, if you give homework and you have somebody read the material before lecture, this is very counterculture, but it turns out that if you introduce the topic before a lecture or a learning experience, then people are really ready to learn at a much deeper level. So you, you, you allow people to preview what's coming. It allows them to identify their learning gaps and focus their limited attention or limited working memory on those things. So that's fundamental to active learning. The other thing are things like simulation, where you have people kind of try to do something, usually before they've ever done it before. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing, no better way to make create a need to know than to have a medical student or a physician fumble through something they think they should be able to do. So taking that kind of theoretical to then the practical of doing it in the simulation. When you say like the, uh, the previewing of lectures, you mean actually just sending them the lecture ahead of time or maybe having them read an article about this topic or something like along those lines? Right, before. Yes. Uh, and in medical school, the way medical school is generally structured, that's a tough, a tough thing for students to do. It's difficult. It's a, it's a habit that very few students have. And um, most teachers still define, teachers who lecture still define themselves as a content expert and therefore not, don't necessarily agree that this is what they should be doing. By, by allowing people to preview, you can use time together much more actively. So time together is precious. Time with an expert at the bedside, very precious. And learning to maximize what everybody takes home from those experiences is a really developed skill. So we've done some uh, bedside teaching programs uh, like E4E and other bedside teaching programs we've done over many years where we try to help people learn just basic ways to involve everybody at the bedside. Yeah, E4E is uh, Education for Educators, a year-long faculty development course on medical education at NYU. One particular simulation involved simulated teaching on rounds with a medical student, resident, fellow, and patient all in the same room, and having to teach to all these different groups somewhat simultaneously uh, was a bit of a challenge. It's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> and that's why that first year of attending them is a big challenge, because you're suddenly responsible for, both taking, for, for doing a lot of different things simultaneously, taking care of patients reasoning through clinical problems and making sure the other people around you are learning something. And there's so many different ways to do active
active learning, as you mm-hmm. kind of uh, were saying, which is a huge bucket. How do you decide in terms of, you know, whether it be a noon conference or uh, before clinic time or something? How do you figure out what's the best modality to utilize if you're if that's your role and you're trying to design curricula like that? So I think. Um, Fundamentally, people shouldn't be too distracted by the need for anything complex and difficult at first. Um, new people, people who want to make their learning environments more active, want to be instructors that utilize these techniques, need to just understand the fundamental thing. The fundamental idea is that the students should be speaking and thinking actively during the session. So if it's a noon conference, uh, make sure you set it up so that you can engage in some kind of active, uh, invo- involved activity with the people in the audience. You can do that. I mean, the common things in a very large audience, and I've seen people do this with thousands of people in the room, is have somebody turn to their neighbor and discuss something. Um, pair and share, so that's sometimes called. That active, if you ever noticed, if you do that early in a lecture format, you can get a lot of really sort of high energy from an otherwise low energy environment, a passive low energy environment. And so increasing the amount of activity that people are expected and it raising expectations that they're going to have to pay attention because you're going to ask them questions. <laughs> uh, in, a non, in a sort of the old-fashioned Socratic method is raising anxiety about that by having people turn to their neighbor, you're not raising anxiety, but you're having people get, engage. And then generating really good material, really complex, interesting stuff. Cases are always the way that physicians think. Um, by using cases and asking people not what they know necessarily, but how they would think, uh, you can engage even the most novice learners actively in a discussion. But you have to really develop strategies or a style that sincerely communicates to the learners that you really want to know what they think. So I think those are where the skills come in, where teachers need to learn to connect with individual students and be sincerely interested in what they already know and what they need to know and get them there. And those are not easy things to learn. But the first step in that, in, toward that active learning environment is to get really curious, like it is in, with patients. Yeah, that's that uh, kind of a KWL type of, of uh, format where you're asking, you know, what is it you know about this topic? What do you want to know about this topic? And then at the end, trying to you know, make sure you synthesize what is it you actually learned about this, uh, this topic as well. And... When I start a lecture, I always, um, and I, I've, I've learned to do this over 30 years, so, um, <laughs> you know, I almost always ask people what they want to know. I, I always say, look, I have about 20 minutes of stuff to tell you, but let's start with what you want to know, what you're curious about, here's the topic I can talk about, and then I, I'm, and then I commit myself to being responsible to them to address their questions if I can. And that just sets up a kind of um, environment where people trust you to answer their questions. And then you can deliver bits um, in chunks that make sense. Um, But again, that requires really thinking about your material, being really comfortable with your material. So I think one of the first things that all teachers should 
just embrace is that you have to feel expert yourself. Um, and then you can let go and let people get active around whatever. You can do that using computers, you can do that using simulation, you can do it using role play. There's many, many, many ways. You can do it at the bedside. I think the onus is on the teacher then to be enough of an expert and have enough material to potentially focus on smaller subtopic areas as well as a role as a facilitator. And you bring up some great suggestions on ways to break down large groups via breakout sessions, pair sharing, just ways to instill a more active environment. That's fabulous. Um, now, I've heard a lot uh, about flipped classrooms. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I commonly hear hear about this topic and other places they say, we do everything flip. We flip everything. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> and, and, uh, and to which I, I'm not like. so far removed from fellowship. And I wonder, oh, my gosh, that's a lot of work that you're sending home to individuals. How do you, you know, can you talk a little about flipped classrooms and yeah. you know, how to make them work and everything flipped? <laughs> yeah, so it's really an interesting. So that's another one of those frameworks that uh, – on the face of it has a lot of validity and everybody wants to do it, but they, uh, I, think, I think we're overusing. It's a technique. But the fundamental principle is what I talked about before, which is that whole previewing idea. And the problem, of course, is that people, our learners are particularly overwhelmed and busy. And so by transferring um, an hour in the classroom to an hour at home, you're asking, you may be asking too much. Yeah. So there are other ways to flip. So the traditional flipped classroom would be to give them some version of what deliver, whatever delivery of information they need before so that when they come, they're ready to discuss. And I think people make the mistake sometimes of not preparing that discussion to make to ensure that it's highly valuable by being very clear about learning objectives and what everybody needs to demonstrate they know by the end. And how are you going to know that? And that leads into an assessment question, which is in a flipped classroom, there should be a way, if you have 15 students in the, in the, in the room or residents on rounds or your fellows, you need, to, you need to have a good sense of how you're going to know they walked away having learned something, which may be crafting questions that people answer, giving them a quiz at the end, giving them quizzes in the middle, giving them quizzes at the beginning. There are structures for flipping classrooms like team-based learning and other problem-based learning. There's, there's case-based learning. There's all sorts of structures mm -hmm. that almost always require a assessment piece. So you have to really think, how are you going to know they know? How are you going to know they learned beyond just whether they liked it or not? Yeah, I think too often times, I, I think that everybody loves these active forums, but does it actually get you to the end point uh, of that is and, and it's interesting you're saying is that you know pairing that's not just about them reading or doing something on the outside but then you have to pair it with something substantive when they now have, have spent that time in the in it has to be worth worth it worth it and so just flipping the classroom without paying attention to good instructional design is not enough um, I think most instructional designers, including uh, I think Greg Norman might agree with this that the mode of delivering instruction is less important than the quality of the instructional design. Learning objectives, an active learning component, and some assessment that lets both you and the student know they learned something uh, has to be well thought through and, and, and designed. You can't just 
throw away the old and not replace it with something valuable. One of the classic flipped classrooms I always thought about was Journal Club. Yes. You go home, you, you read an article, and you come here, and we're going to discuss it, so be able to talk about it. And while there was a discussion of finer points from the article, often there was no formal assessment or valuation at the end to see what actually was learned by participants by the end of the session. What's the take-home points? Yeah, take-home points. So a very simple thing that I learned to do early from, from a colleague of mine was at the end of any open discussion, I, I make sure I leave at least five minutes at the end, so I don't let it run to the very end, to ask for feedback and have students write down take-home points. That's a very simple way to do it. Then you can look at those take-home points and you can assess whether you achieved your goals for them, which is that they took home the key points. It's also an intervention because students have to sit and really think, what did I learn? And it kind of consolidates their learning. So that's sort of a very simple um, strategy, but there are all sorts of ways to test whether people have learned what you wanted them to learn. And you hit upon things like uh, team-based, problem-based learning as well. Again, that takes a lot of effort from teachers and and facilitators to, to have them because there's probably now multiple groups working on, on things simultaneously. and uh, Yeah, ha- good instructional design is, is, is very creative and very valuable, but it takes effort and experience and, and some knowledge about what that is. And we, we tend to assume that we know how to teach um, in ways that we would never assume we know how to perform surgery, for instance. Uh, and I, I would say that most of us could use more support and um, development of our own instructional skills. Yeah, are there, generally, I mean, whether it be here or elsewhere, are there resources to help individuals in terms of crafting that that design, or is it just on the individual teacher and they're left kind of in an island? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so at our institution, I've been here for, for over 30 years, um, we have become over the over the decades more and more and more sophisticated about how we conduct faculty what we call faculty development Um, i think that um, the evidence is pretty clear that isolated workshops to develop faculty skills while while helpful in introducing people to the ideas uh, is not an effective way to change people's practice that most faculty development that's effective needs to be a sort of more longitudinal, well-designed um, set of trainings of some sort, um, and that the best way to help people develop their instructional skills is through the community of practice approach, which is that people have to have to identify with a community of faculty educators, medical educators. We have to think of ourselves as that's a key part of our identity. And then we have to engage with the community in a kind of very coherent way. So I think NYU has become quite sophisticated, um, and there are different levels of participation. You can you can do the workshops, you can do you know an extended year-long faculty development process, you can do a master's program that would lead you uh, in that domain. There are different levels of intensity of participation, but you're not allowed to not participate at this point, which I think is an important culture change that we've gone through. I mean, everybody feels like there's more they can learn, and we're, all, we're lifelong learners, and uh, the, the institution's responsibility is to provide 
some structure to it and some resources, but the individual clinical educator has to feel like that's a, they have to engage. And we can require it. We haven't gotten that far yet. But most, most people declare themselves interested and are willing to put their hard-earned time and effort toward it. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you're not, you're not on an island. You really can reach out and, you know, join the rest of uh, educa- educationally minded faculty that, that are around, use the resources of your university as well and to help you in terms of, of designing, you know, projects, designing curriculums, things like that to help you uh, with, with that kind of structure. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, a few things to say. One is most institutions now have formal faculty development structures. So either there's a dean for faculty development or there's a center for faculty development. Most universities have teacher training for higher education that is relevant to clinical educators. Our institution happens to be relatively resourced. We have our Institute for Innovations in Medical Education. Um, So if, if here, if you want to, you, there's always some place to reach out, but also professional organizations um, like yours. Yeah. Uh, most professional organizations now have real hardy tracks um, where you can get advanced training in these sorts of things. Okay, fantastic. Uh, simulation. Simulation, yeah. hot, hot topic. Everybody loves to do it. And everyone comes out smiling. But it is resource-heavy, needs a simulation center, simulation experts, and coordination of learners' time. So how do we leverage simulation nowadays, given the limitations of this modality? Yeah, no, it's amazing how much resources have been invested in sim centers um, around the world. And, and, and as you know, we have one of the bigger, more fancy simulation centers. Um, I direct research, educational research for our simulation center, and I can say this, that um, most of the scholarship around simulation suggests that we that very high fidelity is almost never required. So you don't need the simulators to look like or feel like or uh, in in as much as one might think the real situation. But you need to have it to be uh, psych- you need you need your participants to have what's called psychosocial moratorium. So they need to go into the sim center and be willing to put themselves into a situation where they feel the same set of feelings they would in a real situation. And it turns out most humans can do that relatively easily without a lot of fidelity. Willing suspension of disbelief. Exactly, exactly right. Once you have that um, environment, then lots of fun learning can happen, particularly because it's safe psychologically to make mistakes. So people would say there's the kind of um, uh, sort of the kinds of mistakes you want to make in simulation and not in real situations. Certainly when I trained, we used to make them in in real time. Mm -hmm. Um, And we would learn from them, but again, increasingly that's not acceptable. Probably shouldn't have been acceptable in those days. You know, interns learn to put in central lines and learn to do procedures on patients. We learned lumbar punctures on patients. We learned uh, to make diagnoses and and to 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 start IVs and uh, to write orders in real situations. So I think all those things can be done with that suspended environment. The other thing about simulation is there's a spectrum. So simulation can simply be what what we would call formative. So people go to the simulation center either as individuals or as teams 
they practice doing something that they have to be able to do well, they debrief it, they can observe it usually because there's lots of capacity for videotaping where they just debrief. They have take-home points, they learn something, and they walk away, and we've demonstrated over and over again that that leads to better outcomes for patients. Mm -hmm. Better central lines, fewer iatrogenic infections. Procedurally, there's no question that in physical procedures, we can move the learning curve so that people are better prepared for real patient involvement. In the other domains, the clinical reasoning, um, it's a little bit less clear. But like I said about clinical scripts, the more you see those patients, whether they're real or simulated, the, the more sophisticated your clinical script, the structure of mm -hmm. your clinical knowledge is. And there's no better way to do that than um, either through actual clinical encounters, but I would, I would argue that for novices, that's tough. It's a tough environment to learn in, or through simulation. And that's formative. The other thing you can do in simulation is summative assessment. So, like I told you about night on call earlier, that's a summative assessment. That's a sort of final exam. Mm -hmm. And we can identify students who are ready and those who are not. And it allows us to be responsible to our social contract. It's a professionalism argument. As a medical school, we don't want to graduate somebody who's not ready yet to practice independently as an intern might have to on a night on call. So we're not there yet, but soon we're going to have benchmarked performance uh, assessments that will allow us to engage with individuals and decide whether they're ready or not. And not, not so much are they ready or not as a dichotomous decision, but in what ways are they ready and in what ways they are not, and then do some kind of what we now call remediation, but I would just say is individualized, tailored education before we send them off into high-stakes environments. No, that's fabulous. Very, it's very nuanced from that standpoint to understand what are their deficits and then trying to build those, those up. Exactly. So I think, you know, procedurally, absolutely. Simulation, great. You have partial task trainers, other things you could really practice over and over again, uh, particularly potentially procedures you don't get to do as, as often because they're rare. Right, um, especially for those situations where you need to keep your skills at an optimal level, but you have no opportunities to practice. And then that structure that you talked about—that's a—you know—you can give them a scenario and see do they hit all the marks in terms of what things you'd want them to think about, how you'd want to think about, and the debriefing is incredibly, incredibly important to to reframe some of their thought processes right. as well. The assessment part of of things that you're talking about with simulation is very, very interesting, and that could be done over the course of their whole tra training, residency, fellowship, even as a, as a faculty as well. And in fact, if you think, you know, the, there's a lot's been made of the optimal performing professions like, like professional athletes and chess, chess masters and airline pilots. But if you look at those, we can't argue that we're, what we do is any less important. And they continue to go into a simulation environment, you know, the golf, and I, I'm, I'm bad with sports analogies, but, <laughs> you know, those tennis players that, that they're masters and they continue to practice day in and day out and they work on, you know, various strokes and they break them down and they, you know, they do it in a way that's like in a simulation environment. They just simulate it over and over and over and over until they get it right. 
And so in, in environments uh, where people have access to simulation, um, like big sim centers like ours, increasingly practicing physicians should be able to book time and just rehearse um, with feedback. That sounds great, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's where the expense comes in. But, and these are expensive environments, but all the, the people who are paying for these environments are the healthcare, the clinical side. Hmm. Right. Right, they have to be an active partner in this because yeah. they're. So that's where we're going to see the benefit uh, long term. Uh, is there any evidence that these things are actually beneficial? One for for patient care, or these active modalities are better than your traditional lecture-based formats in terms of getting the job done, whether it be kind of competency short term as well as long term. Yeah. So, answered question. So there's no. Um, controversy that a poorly designed lecture <laughs> compared to a well-designed simulation is a better way to learn but there's a whole spectrum in between right so uh, people there's a there are some other provocateurs in medical education uh, literature um, the most prominent one is David Cook who has uh, done extensive um, systematic reviews of this literature and basically has admonished us to never do what's called media comparison research again. So comparing delivering instruction in one strategy versus the other strategy is no longer important. This is bad, that's good. The more active and involved and well-designed the learning experience, the more learning. The really interesting questions is how, the more interesting questions now are how to do the the active learning piece best right. and that's that we're now at the mechanistic level where like do you do it this way for 10 minutes or that way for 10 minutes how important is it to uh, measure outcomes there's all sorts of great questions but uh, there is no question that lectures have very limited a very limited role in almost all learning environments we do them for us because <laughs> they're efficient Yes, and uh, we're, there's still a generation in charge that has learned predominantly learned that way. Um, what we don't admit, our generation who predominantly learned that way, is that it was a really poor way to learn. And in fact, we did most of our learning despite 25 hours a week of lecture, which is that was the typical curriculum in medical medical school. So there are. Um, like I said before, even all, even purely problem-based learning curricula, there are schools that are purely problem-based, have some lectures. Because there's a role for lectures. It's just not a learning role. So it's often the way that the famous scientist gets introduced, the medical students get introduced to, you know, our Nobel Prize winner. Right. Uh, that's phenomenal, right? A really great inspirational lecture is good. Uh, the, the kickoff to a new content domain where you say, this is kind of, Microbiology is amazing, and you have a very inspiring, passionate one hour. But as a learning, as an instructional strategy, it just doesn't it doesn't match outcomes um, compared to other kinds of learning strategies. Now, learners are not necessarily the best judge of that because being passive and passively kind of absorbing stuff is less effort. And so if you ask learners, if you only ask satisfaction questions, you might be misled 
um, which is just another bugaboo of mine. We, we care more than we should about the happiness and satisfaction of our learners um, out of proportion to the learning. And so the point seems to be that for those still using a traditional lecture-based format, to at least move to a more case-based and audience participation-based format, along with some sort of testing either throughout or at the end, to better gauge what learners actually learned about the material. Yeah. And again, like I said, there are ways to make large groups, large group sessions, very active. Mm -hmm. But the passive... Uh, lecture format uh, has very limited utility. I think the great example of that in modern times is the TED Talk. Mm -hmm. Even the TED Talk is really only 18 minutes long. Right. Acknowledging that most adults don't want to and can't absorb much more than uh, what would be a third of the average length of a lecture in medical school. And then there are all sorts of critiques about the use of visuals um, in lectures, usually terrible. As in not enough or not too much, too usually. Much, too much. Too many slides, too much information on slides, uh, yes, the right. poor use of the what's called dual processing, your ability to take things in, audit in an auditory way as well as in a visual way simultaneously. Right. And there's all sorts of great cognitive science on that, and we do it wrong um, in general. The sci in a science meeting, you would never have people speak for more than 10 to 12 minutes about their work, for instance because there's not much more than that that people can really concentrate. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about all these different active modalities that, that are there, um, just from your experience, what are, what are the hallmarks of, of things that you can think about uh, to attain success util utilizing any of these and pitfalls to kind of avoid? As a teacher, from the teacher's yeah, perspective? So I think any time you have an opportunity, a structural opportunity to teach, um, you should start by asking yourself, what do I want them to learn? I think a lot of particularly novice teachers, but uh, probably it's true of more senior people too, spend a lot of time worrying about their own performance and what they are going to say and do. And uh, it's a it's a it requires some effort, but to really think, what do I what's the what do I want them to walk away with? and define those things very clearly and share them as part of your presentation. And then think, what, what can I do to turn this opportunity, whether it's a thousand people in a room or 10 medical students around a table or you're doing rounds tomorrow with you know, six learners from very different perspectives, what can I do to find out what they already know about this so that I don't waste any of my time teaching people something they already know. Um, and then the final question is, how will I know if I've been successful? And again, to just get creative. Uh, people use audience response systems. People use, you know, three by five cards. I've, I've sort of done a fair amount with, with post-it notes. You know, you can get 100 medical students to write something down and... Uh, as a way of kind of keeping everybody engaged. Um, but you don't, uh, you don't need a lot of fancy technology, but you just need the, the commitment to say, how am I going to use that one hour or whatever the, the valuable resource is to make sure that pretty much everybody comes to the table understanding what the hour is going to be about 
and leaves having gained something important. So again, instead of worrying about what am I going to do? What am I going to say? Which a lot of people get distracted by, I think. And that requires some self-confidence, um, a lot of doing. And there's a, there's a pretty low threshold, so people can, you know, we don't have high expectations, so you can try different things and, you know, and, and you could fall flat on your face. And <laughs> if you forget, if you have enough self-confidence, you can kind of move on and just give yourself credit for having tried. That sounds uh, good and inspirational. <laughs> uh, last question I had for you was just, what do you see as kind of using your crystal ball? What does the future hold for um, kind of both learning theory and active modalities? I you know, I see this trend where a lot of things online now we're seeing, and, and how do we utilize all that wealth of material, some of it right, some of it wrong, you know, in, in this kind of modern day? Well, I worry. I have children... Um of sort of peri-college age. And I worry that this environment where everything is available outside of your brain uh, has um, gone a little too far in the sense that people believe they don't need to know anything. And as I said, there's no argument that knowledge, the depth of knowledge and experience and the structure of that knowledge is the fundamental underpinning of a, of, of a competent healthcare professional. That's one thing. Um, and so I do think that we need to take much more advantage of the sociocultural piece. We need to think, and I, I think the schools of the future are going to look different, but they're still going to be schools. There's still going to be places where people must come together and commit to each other uh, how they're going to learn and demonstrate that they know something. It They probably will be, like I said earlier, left to their own devices a little bit on how they get the knowledge and skills, and they may be given a lot of flexibility. You know, by the end of this month, you're going to need to do the following 10 things. Go. And you can go to the Internet. You can go to the Sim Center. You can go to the lab. You can make rounds. However however that works, um, people will be freer, mm -hmm. I think. That doesn't relieve the teacher from defining the the domain mm -hmm. and assessing outcomes. I think assessment, I, I, I'm not the only one who thinks this. I do think that the, the old adage that assessment drives learning is true. I think there's evidence to support that. And I think our jobs will increasing as teachers will increasingly be around designing really sophisticated assessments um, and less about showing and telling. And that's going to be a loss. Uh, but I think there'll still be a place for the showing and telling and for the role of the relationship between mm -hmm. teacher and learner. Right. Because that's what, I, you know, in that I was, I was hearing some, a bit of decoupling of then, you know, that the, the teacher from the learner, essentially, yeah. and then the learner's going out and doing the self-directed learning, and then we're more of as an assessor as opposed to necessarily part of that facilitation and education. Which I think would be a tremendous loss. And I think what we're going to learn in the transition, and I worry we're going to have to go a little too far in order to come back, mm -hmm. is how important the fundamental relationships will be. I think there'll be more coaching and mentoring relationships as opposed to teacher-student. Mm -hmm. So that you might be, for instance, coupled up with 10 or 15 medical students on day one and be responsible for their medical education 
for 10 years, uh, maybe, but that, that the fundamental nature of that relationship um, is going to be sort of defined as a coach, not a content expert. Right now we define our teachers based on their content expertise. I think we're going we're gonna to really have to rethink that because content's available. Better content than what's in your head is available someplace else, right. unfortunately. And we're going to have to figure that out. The relationships between doctors and patients, the relationship between learners and experts and coaches and teachers are fundamental, and we don't want to lose that. Uh, but the relationship between the teacher and the content expertise, I think, is going to have to reformulate somehow. Fantastic. That's a, a vision of the future. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It may be terrifying to some people. but. And so before we conclude, Adina, I just wanted to give you a chance to speak about any other thoughts into adult learning and active learning that you might have. So yeah, I think the things that that we've been talking about but not labeling has been the whole uh, domain of what's called metacognition, which is a fancy word for knowing yourself, uh, being very aware of how how you learn, what motivates you, what are good strategies, and I think that we talked a little bit about self-assessment. People who are good self-assessors are very attentive to knowing how they learn best. And that's generally in the domain of metacognition. And so if you're reading the literature and, and that's what, uh, that's, that's words like self-regulated learning. It turns out that goal setting, the ability to set goals for yourself um, is a sort of central feature of metacognition. And so more and more we're going to have to attend to that level to teaching people those skills if they don't already have them and really thinking about it as a unique skill set and there are there's lots of good research in that domain so I just want to make sure we said that the other thing is about professionalism um, thinking about learning particularly to be a physician as simply a cognitive process is obviously too mechanistic and people need to be passionate and committed beyond what the average adult uh, is capable of doing in their work. So we are special in that we get, we are expected to be altruistic. Uh, we have commitments, uh, philosophical, moral, uh, and ethical commitments that most adults in their work um, might give lip service to, but it's not fundamentally part of their day-to-day. -day. And with, uh, with what we do day-to-day, uh, those are very interesting areas for, for teachers to think about. And I think maybe in the long run, just to add to my vision of the future, fundamentally we're going to have to really, really understand that process of how one develops their professional identity. Because it's, it's, without that strong identity, it's going to be hard to go against your own best interests. Uh, in your practice. And so I think that's a wide open area for research and for thinking about instructionally how we reinforce that. And um, lots of smart people have thought about that and there's, it's interesting, but there's, there's really things we don't understand. And the challenges in the future are going to be great in this area um, because of the decoupling 
you know, the idea that you can learn, you can stay at home in your pajamas and do medical school doesn't mean that you could become a physician that way. Um, and we need to really think what's, what's essential. What do they have to show up for and be there for? And what does that look like? Um, I think is going to be interesting and a big challenge um, when our students come to us saying they don't need us. Um, we're going to have to make a good argument for that. And very last question, areas of ongoing research in these topical areas? So the transitions and assessments, uh, assessing things that we care about are very important. We're not, we're good at assessing things we little pieces of things. We're very good at assessing knowledge. Uh, we're somewhat good at assessing certain kinds of procedural skills, and we're really not very good at assessing the things we think are really important, like professionalism, like clinical competence in general, like team performance. Um, so we need to get better at those things, and science uh, research is, a, is, is focused on those things. The other thing is the thing I mentioned before, collective competence, the idea that you know, what do we have to know and do and be able to do as individuals in order to be good, effective team players for the best outcomes of patients? And I think the my research career has focused on how we train healthcare professionals to get best patient outcomes. Um, and that's, that's where we're unique, right, as a learning profession. We need to prove, more and more we're going to need to prove, uh, that we matter. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, that's what we're all striving to do is really in patient care and patient outcomes and exactly. improve those for everyone. So fantastic. That sounds like a good note to end this podcast on. Just want to thank the listeners for listening. And thanks again to Adina for sharing her insights with us here today. Thank you so much. I think this is such important work. This concludes part two of our conversation with Adina Callet on active learning modalities. We hope to have future podcasts this academic year that will focus on some of these modalities Adina highlighted and delve into greater detail, particularly practical approaches to making specific modalities successful. Stay tuned. 